Today's episode is our Halloween offering, so sensitive listeners should note that there is discussion of the treatment of bodies after death. In 2018, I circumnavigated Iceland with author Margaret Atwood for a documentary film about her life. My job was to provide volcano expertise, and in return, I received a uniquely memorable experience and an inadvertent education. During one dinner on the ship, I mentioned the infamous Phallus Museum in Reykjavik. Our Icelandic expert Svanner asked if I'd heard of Nabrok. I had not. Necropants, whose Icelandic name translates to corpse breeches, are said to be pants made from the skin of a dead man. The short version is that if a sorcerer wants a limitless supply of cash, they can get a friend to agree to allow the sorcerer to skin them post-mortem. The friend has to die of natural causes, and a burial has to take place before the sorcerer can dig the body up and start the trouser-making process. Once the necropants are on, the sorcerer has to steal one coin from a poor widow and insert it into the scrotum of the pants together with the Icelandic symbol for necropants. If all goes to plan, a never-ending supply of money sourced from the necroscrotum follows. And yes, the sorcerer has to wear the pants forever. Fortunately, there's no evidence necropants ever existed in the real world. When it comes to odd uses of dead bodies, however, sometimes the truth is much, much stranger than fiction. I'm your host, Jess Phoenix, and this is Science. I'm joined today by UCLA Collection Strategies librarian and author of the book Dark Archives, Megan Rosenblum. You may wonder why I'm speaking with Megan since this is a show about science. So just telling you that Megan is an expert in anthropodermic Bibli, say it for me, Bibli? Bibliopagy. Bibliopagy, anthropodermic bibliopagy. I love learning words. Um, she's an expert on that. Does that help? Probably not, because if you're like me, these are new words to you. So if we're going to put it bluntly, Megan is an expert on something that sounds like the premise of a horror film, books bound in human skin. Just let that sink in for a minute. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, if you could start off by just giving our listeners a bit of background about yourself and then what drew you to this very unique subject. Thanks. Yeah. Um, thanks for having me, Jess. Uh, so I started off as a journalist. Cool. And I worked for NPR stations and alt-weeklies and mm -hmm. stuff. And I lived in Philadelphia. I knew all the cool institutions, including this one called the Mütter Museum in Philadelphia, which is a museum of medical pathology. You know, what some people would call oddities. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't really call it that, but, you know, unusual bodies. Right. Um, so it is a beautiful 19th century wood and brass museum full of really strange body parts. It is a place that is not for everyone and extremely for some people, if you're the science curious type. <laughs> you know, because in initially, you know, it's open to the public, but initially... It existed to um, train doctors, right? Because you probably wouldn't come across some of these more unusual diseases and manifestations 
in your regular practice. So the this was the way for them to share information of, you know, this is what happens when your colon gets as big as a small car. And I was on a, you know, visit to the mooter, yeah. just, uh, you know, going past all the different things that I always noticed there. And I saw this case with these very boring looking leather books, just like plain brown, nothing books, right? Okay. With their covers closed. There was no jewels and, right. you know, embroidery and all that. And I was just like, what? Why is this like this? Like, you know? So then I looked at the uh, little caption and it said that these are books and a wallet bound in human skin made by doctors in the 19th century. It's like this unassuming little marker yeah. that said that all of a sudden that very boring looking book was not not only not so boring, but incredibly upsetting. It is there, you know, where, you know, I'm in a room full of dead people and this is the creepiest thing. Right. Because it's so unexpected. It just looks so unassuming. You literally could not tell the difference between that book and another contemporary book on the shelf. But it has this, like, very dark secret. But then, <laughs> you know, going through library school, starting to do my own research, traveling around doing doing research at other libraries, I would just casually, you know, ask these libraries, you know, Oh, do you have and and there were all these like weird rumors about different books and around that time I had ha I just happened to go through go to Harvard and around that area at the time right after this was in I think 2015 mm -hmm. right after they had um, employed a chemist to test their three alleged human skin books and that news had just broke and it was really huge all over library land. And so, and that was another one where I was like, oh, wait, there were like three yeah. alleged at Harvard? I say alleged because only one of them was real, right? Okay. So then I got to talk to that chemist. We started comparing notes. Mm -hmm. And then this sort of, you know, Avengers team started forming of people who just made it their business to sort of, how many are there in libraries and museums? Can we find this out for real once and for all? Because think about it, at Harvard, there were three books that were being treated this entire time like they were human skin, but two of them were not. So to me, it was one thing to be interested in something old and dark mm -hmm. and mysterious. And it was quite another thing to suddenly be able to apply a cheap, easy scientific test to find out for real for the first time. And that confluence was the thing that made me go down the path. I want to I wanna sort of set the stage because of course I looked a bunch of this stuff up uh, to prepare to come talk to you. Um, so I was wondering if you can tell us about Mary Lynch. Okay, yeah. So poor Mary Lynch. Uh, she was a Philadelphian um, young Irish uh, immigrant um, and she was sick in the hospital and then her family would come visit her and bring her like sandwiches and things like that. Okay. And uh, which sounds nice and fine, yeah. except they didn't know that uh, if there were little white things in the pork in a sandwich, it might be oh. that that could cause trichinosis. And if you were already sick and poor Mary got trichinosis, that they, you know, were only just figuring out that you can transfer uh, trichinosis from a pig to a human by eating. So poor Mary dies. Um... And 
a young doctor. We would now probably refer to him as like a resident, you know, okay. early in his career, does her autopsy and finds all the trichinosis, you know, and puts two and two together between the meat and, you know, all that. And his name was John Stockton Huff. And John Stockton Huff then, you know, while he was doing the, the autopsy, you know, usually if you did an autopsy on someone, you know, there was a lot of byproduct and it went basically in the garbage. So then they, he saved a piece of her skin, got it tanned, saved it for years and eventually bound like three books. What? That is so bizarre. It is. It is. And did, did Mary's family know about that? So I doubt it. Okay. Um, but also if you think about their relative stations in society, you know, eventually people use, you know, doing, you know, dissecting, doctors dissecting bodies for anatomical learning. There was this huge uptick in this because of that whole clinical medicine model of, you know, we should learn, we should do scientifically. It's not just pass down knowledge. We're exploring at an open cadaver. We're seeing lots of patients in a hospital and and gaining knowledge that way instead of just having a few people that you deal with and all those things generally sound good <laughs> right those are generally good things yes but when you're suddenly seeing a ton of patients all the time and you have this busy clinical environment and this focus on the dead body and interaction with it if you don't kind of check in with your humanity or if your education does not include like how important it is to keep checking in with the humanity of the people that you're seeing. Ethics. We need ethics. Yes. This depersonalization process can happen mm -hmm. where you're just seeing this is a body. Not a human. And this is going to the trash anyway. And I'm a book collector and I can save a couple pieces because it would have gone in the trash anyway. And then buying some of my favorite books in the works of the history of medicine. And then those books are extra special and rare, right? And that's what John Stockton Huff did, like, Great. multiple times. Um, there are three, three of their five confirmed human skin books, which is the largest collection proven in the world. Uh, that wallet I mentioned earlier, by the way, was not real. Okay. Yeah. Um, but... Three of them were made with Mary Lynch's skin. And the only reason we know who she was was because a former librarian there uh, named uh, Beth Lander had done some sleuthing in the hospital record books and put it all together because uh, Stockton Huff, unlike most of the other human skin book creators, didn't just say in inside the book, this is bound to human skin, but said in the skin of ML. Oh, <laughs> specifically yeah it was like mary l or ml or something like that but he gave us initials and then beth was able to go into the hospital records match everything up and be able to like po give a positive id to this woman who otherwise we would never have known right um so the power of the historical archive yeah and a you know plucky librarian wanting <laughs> to find out but most of the people that you know, these books were made out of, we don't know who they were. Um, okay. Usually the only thing that really tips anybody off was someone at some point wrote a note inside that said it was bound in human skin. Okay. However, of like my project of the books we've tested, a, quite a number of them 
had those notes and then were not. They were not. Okay. So there's a bit of blurring between truth and fiction. And so let's get into the science side of it. Mm -hmm. um, so the, what are the scientific tools that you and the folks on the project were using to determine if something's human skin or other types of leather? Yeah, so uh, Dale Kirby was the chemist who he, it, you know, used to work for IBM. The chemist who was doing cultural heritage objects for the Peabody Museum at Harvard. And then um, the folks in preservation at Harvard's libraries, he, they were talking together and they said, hey, do you think that this test that you're doing on, you know, native artifacts to find out is this a seal or a, you know <laughs> you know what is the this kayak made out of oh yeah etc which is really interesting work like do you think this will work on these books right um so he came up with how they would you know test these objects and it was really pretty brilliant because leather is like really a very specific material leather goes through this really chemically like corrosive not corrosive but like a very intense process mm -hmm. chemically in order to make it more stable okay and part of what happens during that is that the dna like gets destroyed right okay so there's no dna that you can work with so then what he did was what would last though what persists are the um proteins okay so this is a proteomics thing um and you can't get very precise but you can use um do peptide mass fingerprinting uh and use a you know mass spectrometer it's a pretty simple little desktop machine and it costs almost nothing to use wow and um it's technically destructive which some places are just like no destruction of any artifacts because you have to take something that's teeny teeny tiny if you can see it with your eye it's plenty big okay sample off of the leather binding and you dissolve it in trypsin, and then you run it through this machine. And what you get back looks like a kind of line graph. Okay. And that corresponds with the animal family, mm -hmm. basically. And then you compare it to a library of other samples and say, that is a sheep, that is a... You know, yeah. the Bovidae family mm -hmm. is... They, they have one marker that differentiates far enough back in evolutionary time that makes it so you can say that's a deer... That's a sheep. That's a goat. They're the same family. Okay. Okay. But they differentiated long enough ago that you can see the separation. The homidae family, that's your great apes. Uh, we're too close to our relatives there. So if it comes off homidae, it is probably a human. And the science taken together with the uh, things you know about the artifact, the reason why it existed in the first, like why we test in the first place because of some some person putting a note in yeah uh pretty pretty solid it matches right yeah yeah but we can't tell biological sex from that test okay we can't tell race from that test but so we can't tell from the test that you were using with the peptides um you you couldn't say this person is female caucasian you know in her early 30s that that doesn't work okay yeah yeah so any individual like identifiers would have to come from something about the book, the, okay. those things on the artifact. This is cool because it really is the intersection of history and journalism and investigative work and science and using this technology. And 
And then there definitely are moral and ethical questions that are raised. Absolutely. Um, how many uh, books do you suspect are out there that might be bound in human skin? Yeah, that's a great question. And there are kind of like a number of levels there, right? I think people love books just as much as they ever did, but the physicality of having a leather-bound book, now it's almost like a really specialized art kind of situation. So, but there are still private collectors out there. And so the Anthropodermic Book Project, we focused that project on public libraries and um, museums. So academic, whatever kind of libraries, archives, museums mm -hmm. publicly held and in that we had identified 50 alleged books that we were able to point like that specific book of those 50 we tested 31 which is not bad yeah um and of that 18 of them were real human skin and 13 were other animals wow okay so that's actually a higher percentage that were what they were purported to be than weren't right so there this was I won't call it common, but I, it also isn't so rare as to only find one or two examples. Right. So it, it wasn't some Hannibal Lecter, you know, creepy doctor in his basement thing. And these were, you know, the doctors we can associate with them were plenty well respected in their fields. It was ubiquitous enough wow. that if you were in that social circle in the West, you probably knew someone or heard of someone who had such a thing. Even if you didn't agree with them doing it, you probably were aware that people did it. What do you think should be done with these books? Um, it, should there be a uniform sort of way of handling them? Or is it a case-by-case -case kind of thing? Or what, what is your opinion on that? You know, as someone who works in the cultu cultural heritage institution um, and who studies these things, I think... It is so important, like having best practices and guidelines and stuff is great. You know, museums have more experience dealing with human remains, but most libraries do not have experience dealing with human remains. Really caution a broad brush approach yeah. to things that come out of a variety of circumstances. I also think that evidence of atrocities is evidence we can't change what happened to make a thing, but we can use the very memorable existence of that mm -hmm. object to um, give like lasting educational experiences. And I mean, if some of those books that were written in got to, got you know buried or thrown away mm -hmm. before 2015, when you started this. Books that were just old rare books yeah. that were not human would have gotten destroyed for no good reason. Um, and yeah, we're doing science and learning learning from things, right? I feel like we're using this information for good. Nobody's like capitalizing off of the existence of these things or anything. Yeah. But it's a really pal palpable uh, story about medical ethics, about cultural ins institutions and their responsibilities about using old things for new science and all of those things I think are really interesting and important. They would not exist if they were, if the books were destroyed. Right. So I come down on the let's keep it. Mm -hmm. Now, I would completely change my tune if there was, say, you know, a specifically identified person, an identifiable family member. The family says, hey, they wouldn't have liked this. I want this, whatever. 
So, like, that's why this is very different from, like, a Henrietta Lacks situation. Right, where she has living relatives who know. Yeah, yeah. and they had strong opinions about it, all of it, yeah. right? Yeah. And and that is, so the way things were handled with that eventually comes out very differently because yeah. of all that context. Part of what I explore in the, so sort of, towards the end of the book is, what would something like this look like in our modern age of like consent is everything so so we are so rightly like entrenched in this idea of consent yeah that we it's hard to imagine a time when bodily consent was not a concept um right. you know we we have to look at things with the gaze that we currently have right and it does change the the equation a little bit when, you know, if you put it into context. This is all us looking back yeah. a couple hundred years and putting that on the people of the time. I'm not saying that's not like, you know, a relevant conversation, but to make decisions based off of, you know, ideals that didn't exist back then is kind of, you know, a hard thing to do. So what would it look like today, right? What would that look like? And the closest thing I could find was... Um, Tattoo preservation. So there's been a lot of new methods of preserving tattoos, right? Mm -hmm. These like seeker proprietary methods of, you know, preserving tattoos. Now people preserve tattoos as long as they've done, you know, anything else. They have preserved tattoos at the Mütter. They have preserved tattoos at the Welcome in London, um, you know, because doctors would find them on people and save them, right? Okay. So they were taken in a context of a doctor taking from a dead body okay now different scenario where the person whose tattoo they are may decide that they want to keep this after they die and it is all consensual nobody is going to forcibly take someone's tattoo from them mm -hmm. um and when you talk to tattoo people which i did quite a bit for this bet um the idea of them preserving their tattoo is not gross at all for most of They're like, oh, yeah, I get that. I get why you want to do that. It's art. <laughs> right. And I think part of that is consent, though. Yeah. It's about the consent. So I don't think a lot of people, you may not personally want your dead uncle's tattoo. Like, you are leaving it for someone who's still alive. and You hope they want it. Yeah, you hope they want it. But they much might. like everything that people leave behind whether your family actually wants that thing or not is another question um any collection any whatever but you're you know people feel like way more comfortable with the notion of it mm -hmm. because someone has agency right however the laws are way slower <laughs> of course about like getting up to where people feel like if i consent to it anything should be okay yes the laws are like no nah, not actually and all of the laws in different places are different. So when you were talking about, you know, like human remains and stuff, like what even constitutes a human remain and what kinds of human remains like apply, what like what laws apply to certain kinds of human remains are different in different places. Yeah. So like, was there an application of skill? Like, mm -hmm. isn't an artifact that was made with with human hair? Oh, yeah. Or, like, teeth. Yeah. Or blood. Right. You know, something written in blood. Right. Is that a human remain? And art artists have made things with their own blood for a long time. Yeah. No. Andy Warhol did, like, you know, paintings with, like, pee. Yeah. Is that a human remain? Yeah. You know? <laughs> and so, 
the lines there mm-hmm. are like really dependent and also how many laws there are like there's a whole human tissue act in england that's like very explicit and then and how old the human remains are taken into effect mm-hmm. and all of these things and then in scotland it's even more strict in paris it's ex- or in france is extremely strict okay in the u.s it's state-based there's a, almost no the the only like national law having to do with human remains is NAGPRA. Okay. The Native American Graves Repatriation Act. And so that is and that came about in the nineties, right? And so that is the only national law about dead bodies and dead body parts. Everything else is state based and they can be really, really vague. Okay. So just I had no like I it's something you don't think about a lot when you're alive unless you're dealing with someone who may be dying, um, then it comes up. But yeah, I mean, and I know there have been a lot of new thoughts about how we dispose of remains with all that we have new techniques available. There's green burials, there's getting made into a diamond, <laughs> there's becoming a tree. We have a lot of choices now that we didn't used to have. And we have a, a final question I ask everybody on the podcast. We are the union of concerned scientists. So Megan, why are you concerned? Oh boy. Uh. Oh, gosh, I'm so concerned. I'm so concerned about so many things. Um, Part of my answer before about people wanting to, with good intention, apply things too broadly without considering context or or history, uh, that concerns me because decisions get made that are irrevocable. Um, And I don't like the idea that people, you know of course we make decisions the best that we can with the information we're given but i think we should be really really careful about say like destruction of things if we are not you know like how sure are we about our firm stance in the right forever about this thing you know that is a really really hard thing to know so i so like i exercise and caution I think is really important when it comes to that. So specifically with my work in libraries and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that that would be something that concerns me. Disinformation and misinformation as a librarian is extremely concerning. Yeah, I'd say that's fair. And then one last little question. I was going to end with that, but it made me remember something. Um, so have you actually handled the books yourself? Oh, yeah. I've, I've had dozens of... <laughs> What was it like the first time that you got to hold one of the, uh, that you knew it was from human skin? Well, so there was one time that's funny where I was at a rare book cataloging course at uh, UC Berkeley and we had mentioned, like somehow skin books had come up in conversation very casually. And then the next day, you know, you would have a cradle, uh, you know, in front of you uh, and a book and then you would be learning how to like you know describe it uh-huh and uh the i picked it up and i was like flipping through it to see what it was and then my professor was like oh hey so that's like that human skin book that i mentioned and we had it was already in my hand Ooh. and i was like yeah you know it's kind of like okay i'm holding this thing and it was uh, there was no preparation wow you but were just in it like yeah it's happening just this is happening right away and uh, it's like i wasn't gonna drop it or anything but it was just kind of this like moment turns out we tested it later and it was horse 
oh, in general, you know, I go to the library, I pick these out, and they are really normal. Okay. Surprisingly normal? They're so normal, and you know Mm -hmm. what you're touching, but other people don't. To me, it is creepier that they're not creepy looking, that they're normal. They blend in. They're just like us. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's way creepier to me, but, you know, I take time with them. I treat them with respect. I, like, you know, try to get all the information I can out of the book and everything just like you would with any other book you were researching with. But there is this sort of, like, back of your mind feeling. I want to send people where they can read what you've done and how they can find you to learn more. So I know that the short title of your book is Dark Archives by Megan Rosenblum. Can you give us the full title? A Librarian's Investigation into the Science and History of Books Bound in Human Skin. I'd like to say a big thank you to Megan Rosenblum for infusing our science with a touch of spooky. Thanks to Rich Hayes and Omari Spears for production help, and to Anthony Eyring for our multimedia magic. Happy Halloween, science sorcerers!